Acts 4, beginning in verse 32. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and had one soul, and neither did anyone say that any of those things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together? to test the spirit of the Lord. Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet, breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. And Father, we humbly ask for the help and assistance of your Holy Spirit now as we open the Word of God. Prepare us, Lord. Give us an ear to hear and a heart to be receptive to what you want to say to us collectively as a church and just individually through the Word of God this morning. Bless your Word and speak now by your Spirit's ministry, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, what role does the Holy Spirit particularly play amongst the church body? I think certainly there's a pretty large list that we could lay out in regards to what the Holy Spirit does and his function as he operates among the church body. But this passage certainly gives us, I think, some indications of some very clear things that the Spirit of God is operating amongst the church. The passage gives us some evidences of the ministry of the Spirit among the church family. For example, in verse 32, we'll see that it's the Holy Spirit who stimulates unity among the church family. We see as we look in verse 33 there, that it's the Holy Spirit who is the one that enables and empowers us to be useful for ministry, as well as to be effective in evangelism and reaching unsaved souls. 
It's the Holy Spirit who we'll see in verse really 34 down through verse 37 who does things like causing love to be exercised among the church family. That it's the Spirit who brings forth the atmosphere of love that should be expressed among God's people. And then in this very unique and kind of sobering account in chapter 5, verse 1 to 11, we also see that it is the Holy Spirit who deals with sin among the church. And it's the Holy Spirit who promotes holiness among God's people rather than hypocrisy. Look at me in verse 32. He says there regarding the events happening again, another snapshot of the early church. We get this picture and it says, verse 32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. So again, as the Spirit of God is continuing to direct Luke to record the events of the early church in this stage, we get another sort of picture, a cameo of some of the atmosphere that existed among the church. And here I think we see that the Spirit of God was stimulating unity amongst the church body or the the church family the spirit was stirring up and stimulating an atmosphere of unity look how the bible there in verse 32 refers to the church family it refers to the family of god as the multitude of those who believed the multitude of those who believed. now a multitude always refers to a large and often diverse group of people A large group of people, whenever you have a larger group of people, you have differences and distinctions among those who are gathered. And we know by this point that the church family has swelled the numbers at least to over 5,000 people, if not considerably more by this point in time. We also know from the early part of the book of Acts that all of those different new Christians and believers were from various nationalities. They were from different ethnicities. They spoke different languages. Uh, They had a diverse culture. Some were wealthy. Some were less fortunate. And yet, despite all those outward differences of their ethnicity and socioeconomic status and these kind of things, despite the outward differences, they had a real inward bond. And that inward bond we see there is because they were a multitude of people who all believed the same thing. That is, they had a common faith in what was true about the Lord Jesus. For example, Acts chapter 4, back in verse 12, they all believed that salvation could not be found in any other and that there was no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. They all believed that same thing. They all believed the same thing about who Jesus was generally and who jesus was to them personally that was the common thread inwardly about all of their lives it was a unifying factor they all saw themselves as sinful people and they all saw jesus as the solution to their problem of sin they all recognized hey one thing is true about all of us whether we're of this ethnicity or that ethnicity or this nationality or that nationality whether we're rich or whether we're poor, whether we're successful, or whether we're kind of just unknown and insignificant in society, the one thing that's true about all of us, we're all sinful. We all fail. We've all made mistakes. We all have a sense of guilt for wrong things that we've done in different degrees in our lives. And the only solution is Jesus. 
And Jesus came to die for all humanity, not just certain individuals. And that shared belief towards Jesus brought a shared spiritual experience that united them. It gave them a bond. That's why in 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul talks about the body of Christ, he says the body has many members, but all members of that one body being many are one. And then he says, for by one spirit, we're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We've all been made to drink of one spirit. So the experience that we have when we come to Jesus Christ as Savior and we are baptized spiritually that is immersed, put into this thing called the family of God, and we all receive of the same Holy Spirit, it's a unifying experience that happens where the Spirit causes us to all be children of the same Father now. And technically, we all have the same Father. It doesn't matter what we look like, what our social status is. We all have the same Father now. It's the Father in heaven. And we are all now children of the same Father, and we're now spiritually brothers and sisters in Christ. We've become family. And that happens as the result of coming to Jesus Christ. You embrace Jesus, and then you are adopted and put into a spiritual family, which brings about a unity. And that's why we read here the supernatural unity being experienced. That's why he describes verse 32 among them. Look what it says. It says they were all of one heart and one soul. That is, they were experiencing this unified desire. They had a unified interest. They all wanted to serve Christ. They all loved the same father. They wanted to function together as a family. That's why the end of verse 32 says, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. In other words, the spirit was inspiring sort of a selfless heart among the people of God. The Christians were experiencing sort of this attitude of sharing and selflessness in the perspective. Nobody was, was looking to live an independent lifestyle where they were looking out for their own interests because, you know, you got to look out for your own interests in the world. And, and if you don't look out for yourself and watch out for yourself and defend yourself and protect yourself and advance yourself, well, you're never going to make it out there in the world, right, in the world. <laughs> but in the church, that's not supposed to be the attitude. In the church, there's not supposed to be this desire to protect our own self-interest and advance ourselves and promote ourselves. The interest of the church, the interest of what a healthy family is supposed to be like is we're family. So we do things together and we look out for each other's interests and we care about one another in such a degree where we're not looking to sort of move ahead and leave someone else behind, but there's sort of this heart that we move as a unit together. And therefore, it says they all viewed whatever they had as not belonging to themselves because really their perspective was everything we have belongs to the Lord. Everything we have belongs to the Lord. We're just stewards. He's just blessed and entrusted us to the degree he has. But what we have belongs to the Lord. So there was none of this kind of natural human nature of this is mine or me first. That, that just kind of didn't exist in their attitudes. Instead, there was this unified desire to live in partnership, to function as a unit, to kind of serve as soldiers in Christ, all living for the same general and accomplishing the same mission. That's why it says the end of verse 32, they had all things in common. And that's our Greek word koinonia that we've seen before. It's translated there, they had all things in common. That Greek term koinonia speaks of having a shared life. It's often translated fellowship, but it's not just talking about, as I said before, like coffee and donuts and conversation. It's talking about caring for one another. It's talking about close partnership. That's the term that's described. 
Because look, we can be social and not really experience spiritual fellowship and koinonia. As even the Lord's people, we can be social and interact and have a game night and you know have a church event and have fun and laugh, but that's not really koinonia. That can be a part of it. Koinonia is spiritual caring. It's functioning in close partnership as a family, doing life together, helping, assisting one another, sharing our lives, living open before one another, knowing who's struggling and how we can help and just kind of realizing, look, we do this together. We function as a family. We care for one another. That's koinonia. And that's what the Holy Spirit seeks to uh, sort of stimulate among the church family. He seeks to produce this unifying spiritual fellowship of koinonia and when the spirit's being yielded to this spiritual bond of loving partnership is really what should be being developed among the lord's people look what he says in verse 33 he also says and with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the lord jesus and great grace was upon them all so here's another ministry of the spirit secondly we see and that's this the spirit was enabling servants of christ to both do ministry as well as to do what we might call evangelism that is sharing the gospel of jesus with the unsaved world notice the language there the bible gives to us the spirit says great power and great grace i love those terms great power and great grace was upon them for their testimony of jesus we can see the leadership it says the apostles were experiencing great power as they gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That is, as the leaders of the church were proclaiming the gospel and preaching and teaching about Jesus, there was a dynamic from the Spirit of God that was upon their life, whereby they weren't doing it in a way that was becoming ineffective. It was very effective. There was great power upon their presentation of who Jesus was and telling people about what it meant to, to live for the Lord. Notice as well, they were testifying not just that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that is true, but it says there was great power when they spoke about the reality of the power of Jesus' resurrection, that Jesus was alive that he was Lord, that he wanted a personal involvement in people's lives and to, to work in their life with the power of his resurrection. But notice the ministry wasn't limited to just the leaders. It was something everyone in the church was participating in because it says there in the end of verse 33 that great grace was upon them all. And there the word grace just speaks of divine favor. Uh, it speaks of a charisma a supernatural enablement from the Lord that there was a charismatic dynamic from the Holy Spirit. Great grace was upon everyone, upon all believers who were serving the Lord and being useful in different capacities, whether it was caring for one another or doing the different function of the Lord's work in ministry. There was just a favor and a blessing. And you know what? The same thing is needed from the Holy Spirit for the church today. We need the Holy Spirit to be working freely, unhindered, that he's not being quenched or resisted or grieved so that there can be great power among the Lord's church. 
so there can be great grace upon each one of the Lord's people so that each one of us can be equipped for works of ministry and then be effective in the different ways that God wants to use you and use me and use each one of us, whether it's serving together as a unit, as a church family and all the moving parts of a local church or whether it's being influential in our jobs and neighborhoods and outreaches, that great grace would be upon us to be effective for the Lord. Notice, thirdly, we see here another ministry of the Holy Spirit. We see at the end of chapter 4, verse 34, down through verse 37. And that's this, the Holy Spirit's ministry we see in the last part of chapter 4 is that he was causing love, real love, God's love, this unconditional divine love, love among the family of God. And notice it's not just being spoken of. It's being practically manifested. See what it says, verse 34 and 35. Nor was there anyone among the church who lacked for all who were possessors of lands. You can say, ah, the air went off. God, I know some of you are thinking, whew. Others of you are bummed. Some of you are thrilled. That's part of being a family, isn't it? I guess I see the looks on your face. Some were like, thank you, Jesus. You heard my prayers. Others are already praying for it to turn back on. That's part of being a family. Back to the text. So there was none who lacked, verse 34, for all who were possessors of lands or of houses sold them, brought the proceeds and the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they were distributed to each one as anyone had need. So notice, here you see love in action. The Spirit of God is directing a desire in the hearts of the believers to mutually care for one another, and it's being motivated by love. It says here in the description, no one enjoyed great excess and fared well materially Why other people were really just struggling to get by and lacking and not even having sufficient to be able to sort of function in everyday survival. The reason? Because people out of love wanted to help one another. They wanted to care for each other. And remember, this was a time period, this is why the dynamic's happening, Whereas we saw in the early part of the book of Acts, multitudes of people got saved very quickly when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. So you have this vast influx of all these new Christians who are there visiting from all different lands in Jerusalem. They all get saved. They're excited about Jesus. There's this spiritual buzz of this new family of God. And rather than return home, many, many people were choosing to stay in Jerusalem because they just wanted to be with their new spiritual family. They wanted to be together with their brothers and sisters. Of course, however, that caused a major financial and housing crisis because now thousands of extra people are around. And how do we take care of all these people? And where's the housing? And they need jobs. So this dynamic involves where there's sort of this struggle a little bit. So those with excess wealth and prosperity did not see their excess wealth or prosperity as something for personal indulgence. They didn't look and say, hey, well, I mean, we have a house here in Jerusalem and then we, you know, we, we got a few vacation houses over there in uh, Samaria and, and they didn't have, their perspective was, look, it's not for us to, maybe God gave us excess so that we can be facilitators of help. Maybe God's really blessed us because there are people that maybe are struggling and rather than enjoying extra, maybe we should perhaps deny ourselves and use it to channel to help other people. And so this is kind of what's happening here. It says those who had lands and excess 
really materially houses and lands they were selling and then taking the proceeds and bringing that as a donation the proceeds laying it at the feet of the leadership the apostles and then the leadership and apostles those were then wisely distributing where they knew that there were needs to help people in a way that jesus was glorified and love was exercised now pay attention here nothing here is being legislated or required Don't misread the text or listen to people who try and distort what the Bible is teaching here. Nothing's being legislated or required. This is not a program that was instituted by the apostles that must be submitted to. This is not a description in the Bible of communism or socialism. Communism or socialism says what is yours is mine. I don't care if you work for it and I didn't. What's yours? It's mine. And I'm entitled to it and you need to give it to me. That's socialism or communism. This is communism that's directed by the spirit of God bringing love in the hearts of people who are saying what is mine is yours. There's a big difference there. It's a big difference between saying what is yours, it's mine too. Rather than saying, no, no, what is mine is yours because out of love i want to help you and i want to share and i care more about you than stuff vastly different that's what's going on here love is directing the hearts of these people this is just a spirit inspired love and just a unique caring for one another a spirit-led love that was directing them to do this and this practice keep in mind it didn't last forever in fact the time you get to chapter six it was causing problems in the church And it seems they then kind of said, this isn't working. Uh, So this wasn't even something that carried on long term. But how wonderful to see the love of God just manifested there. It's just a great picture of God's love. People actually doing these practical things to care for one another. But again, what does the Bible tell us? Galatians, the fruit of the spirit is love. How can you tell if somebody's a spirit-filled believer, they'll be a very loving person? And that doesn't just mean they're a very sentimental person. Because last I checked, Jesus is not known for his love by being sentimental, but being sacrificial and servant-hearted and that he would die to himself to enrich and bless and benefit the lives of others instead of himself. And that's what's happening here. Their love's being demonstrated. They're caring for people. And, and it's just an atmosphere of love. A healthy church should be a loving church. Healthy believers should be loving believers. There should be this environment. Remember what Jesus said, John 13? He said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples by your love one for another. Jesus said that would be the mark. That if the love, the unique love that we have as the Lord's people, that we just really care for each other in a very different way than the world does. That's the idea. Jesus said, this will how they'll know that you're my disciples because of the love you have for one another. The people from the world should be able to look into this thing called the church, the family of God, and just see how believers and brothers and sisters interact. And they, you know, they do life together and they just help each other out. And, and that we do it to a degree above and beyond just buddies at work do or you know, people who are you know, friends in society, that they look and they say, wow, I mean, I can, wait, your church did what to help you out? These, who, where are these people that come from? And they're doing... And, and people begin to realize, wow, that's, that's unique, right? It's supernatural. It's the love of God working in the hearts of believers that make us to go above and beyond. Well, to personalize this love, 
the Bible shows us one example of it, verse 36 and 37. It says, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, that's what Barnabas means, he was a Levite of the country of Cyprus, an island we'll see where they ultimately go and do the first missionary trip to. Having land, he sold it, and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, Take notice here, to personalize this, we're introduced to this man Barnabas. He becomes a key factor going on in the book of Acts who really encourages the work of the Lord. It says his name was Joseph, but yet he did such a kind, generous thing that day in his donation that the apostles nicknamed this guy. They gave him a new name and they called him Barnabas because that meant son of encouragement. As a result of this man's kind, generous gesture, he became such an encouragement to the church in that day that they said, man, and they just changed his name. You're Barnabas. You just, you're, you like give birth, like a son of encouragement. You give birth to encouragement, man. The stuff that you do and the ways that you've helped, I mean, you just bring such encouragement. It seems Barnabas was just a very encouraging person, encouraging others to do what's right by his example, encouraging those maybe who were struggling by the way that he helped out. He just had a gift, the Bible seems to portray him, just a gift from the Spirit of the Lord to just be a very encouraging person. Just someone who just had a real capacity from the Holy Spirit working in his life where he just brought great encouragement and showed love to people. And he just had this kind of gift of being a very encouraging person. Now, it appears that Barnabas is set before us here, and again, in the midst of love, I think, because maybe God is trying to tell us one of the greatest ways to show love is be an encourager. Barnabas, I mean, he just he's such an encouraging person. He was demonstrated in a highlight there of this great love that he showed, this very generous deed he must have done that day, and how we need people like Barnabas in the church. People who are just encouragers. They mean, oh, I could never stand up and, and preach the gospel publicly at an outreach in the city, or I could never do children's ministry, or I could never... Look, can you encourage somebody? Can you come to church on Sunday morning and say, well, yeah, I don't work in the sound booth. I don't work in the children's ministry. I'm not an usher and greeter. I don't clean on the cleaning team. I certainly don't want to preach behind the pulpit. But, but I could go there every week and look for somebody it looks like they need a little encouragement. And maybe just you see in their face because you're a little bit more sensitive that they just need a little encouragement or somebody to show that they care about them or, or, or that you just say, even not that, I'm just going to try and in every conversation be as edifying and encouraging as I possibly can. And, and what a wonderful thing, how we need people like this. And one of the greatest ways to encourage uh, is certainly to just do that. Be supportive, speak uplifting words. Say things that would just build up others. Be a spiritual cheerleader in somebody's life. Again, one of the greatest ways to show love is encouragement. Now, as we come to chapter 5, verse 1 and 11, 1 through 11, this unique story here, kind of sobering, certainly it's connected to chapter 4 because no doubt lots of people were aware of what everybody was doing bringing proceeds. Many people were aware of Barnabas. He kind of gets highlighted. And I think many people admired Barnabas. They thought, wow, that guy's spiritual, man. I mean, he is loving. I can't believe he donated all that. What an and so certainly Barnabas is kind of getting recognition, certainly for kind of being a great man and very spiritual. And I think the devil now misguides this and manipulates it because he wants to pollute 
the ministry of God's spirit. So look what happens in chapter five. It says a certain man named Ananias during all these events with Sapphira's wife, they sold a possession, but he kept back, notice part, part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware, and he brought a certain part, it says, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here we see a husband and a wife who we're going to see are guilty of severe hypocrisy. They're pretending, knowing what others were doing, what Barnabas had done, being recognized as spiritual and generous. They're now prompted in their hearts and they desire the same recognition. Wow, I'd like to look spiritual like that. I'd like everybody in the church to think I'm really godly. I'd like everybody in the church to think I'm really generous and that I give like he gives. Wow, that's quite a... I'd like to be known like that too. So it says Ananias and his wife concede together they make and it says they sold a possession that's what everybody else was doing but they didn't bring the full amount of the proceeds in sincerity and genuineness like everybody else was doing they sold the full amount but it says they kept back part of the proceeds for themselves they brought just a certain part and laid it at the disciples feet the indication here if you're not grasping it is they're trying to give the impression that they gave everything They're trying to give the impression that they brought 100% of the proceeds of that house or land that they sold because they want to donate like everybody else, but really they just brought a part to donate. But they wanted to give the impression they were bringing everything. So what you have happening is they want to give an image of being generous or an image of being loving because they want to appear spiritual. This couple is pretending. They're pretending that something is true about them that really is not. They're putting on an outward act in front of the rest of God's people that something is real about their spiritual life that really is not true about their spiritual life. They're trying to give an image outwardly before the church to appear spiritual, and yet their outward actions are just a show. It's just a demonstration to kind of have the appearance of being really spiritual and godly but it's not consistent with what's really true with their private life. And this becomes the problem here because this is what's called hypocrisy. And can I say this? Spiritual hypocrisy is hypocrisy in the worst form. Hypocrisy is hiding what is true and real about yourself and pretending before other people. It's putting on an act that something is true about you that really is not. Something that is, you know, kind of, representative of your life when the reality is that's really not a true representative of what's genuinely true about your personal and private life. You're just kind of pretending that outwardly by your actions or your words, trying to give off an image. And look, we can all be guilty of this even among the church. Don't think it just happens in the world. In fact, the world, they're our harshest critic. I don't want to come to the church because it's filled with a bunch of hypocrites, right? And who hasn't heard that before? The best answer to that is, look, we could use one more. Why not join us? I mean, just what's the big deal? You even get free donuts and coffee afterwards. But we can be guilty in the church, right? We want to just appear a little more spiritually mature or like we're walking faithfully with Jesus or that we're this, you know, godly family that has all together. So we act and behave and talk and do certain things sometimes and we're pretending. 
And we're, we're consciously pretending because we want to give an image, whether we're embarrassed or insecure to be real, or we just, in pride, we like being seen as more spiritual or more godly in a certain way. Look, hypocrisy is greatly offensive to God. Jesus strongly opposed and denounced hypocrisy. Matthew 23, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Look, hypocrisy is a very destructive thing to our spiritual lives. And it's a very detrimental thing when it's introduced among the church family. Hypocrisy is a very cancerous, destructive thing. So here we're going to see the Holy Spirit deal with sin. Here's another ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church. He deals with sin and he promotes holiness. Again, what's the title? He's called the Holy Spirit. You ever take note of that? The Holy Spirit. He's not called the Happy Spirit. He's called the Holy Spirit. His job is to preserve holiness and promote holiness in our lives personally and among God's people. So look what happens here. He wants to establish holiness. So look what happens, verse 3 and 4. It says, Peter, when they came this day, pretending that they gave everything, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, he says, was it not in your own control? You could have done whatever you wanted with it. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. So notice what happens here. Peter receives revelation from the Spirit of God in regards to what was being done in this couple's life, their hypocritical actions, and he rebukes them for it. He openly exposes their sin directly to them, Perhaps this was even before others as well, but he confronts them for listening to Satan's voice and lying in their attitudes and actions before the presence of God. Now, question has to come on. First of all, how did Peter know what they did and that they were lying and pretending to everyone? I mean, in the early church, did the church leaders have investigators that would do surveillance on questionable members of the church? And then bring back, you know, hey, that couple looks a little shady. Could you maybe just hang out, you know, maybe follow them to work, you know, bring me back. How does Peter know this? There's no way that he could be aware of this any other way other than that by the Spirit of God revealing it to him. This is what we see in the Bible as referred to 1 Corinthians 12 as one of the gifts of the Spirit, what is called the word of knowledge whereby a God who knows all things, right? You can't hide anything from God. God knows everything about everyone and has knowledge of all things. And so that God of all knowledge, seeing and being aware of everything, can by his spirit impart knowledge into the minds of one of his servants and reveal something to them that otherwise they could not know in any other way unless it was divinely revealed to them by an all-knowing God. This is what the word of knowledge is. It is one of the gifts of the Spirit, whereby the Holy Spirit gives such insight and knowledge that could not be otherwise known unless God revealed it supernaturally. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about it and says that the gifts and manifestations of the Spirit are for the profit of all. Now, this was an important operation of this gift because what was happening was very unhealthy and unprofitable for the church here. 
This was hypocrisy being introduced into the church. This was pretending and faking spiritually. Hypocrisy encourages fake spirituality and it's like a cancer to God's family. It's a very unhealthy thing. So God saw what they were doing and how it was deceptive and hypocritical and he didn't want their hypocrisy to pollute and defile the church. So therefore he reveals this to Peter. He confronts this sin. That's why Peter says, verse three, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Take notice. Satan is the one who inspires hypocrisy. Satan is the one who encourages people to pretend, to be deceptive spiritually, to put on an outward act. Satan inspires that. That's where the influence of that comes from. If you're being directed, tempted, inspired to pretend about your spiritual life, that's Satan tempting you to do that. That's Satan who is misdirecting you to put on a show, to play some game, to put on an act outwardly, to tempt and grieve and quench and resist the spirit of truth who would encourage us to walk in light and to be real and to walk in truth. And Satan is always the one who entices those kind of things to pretend like we see going on here. And please notice in the text, the issue is not, it is not about the fact that they didn't give enough money. This isn't a text about giving or where Peter's saying, I can't believe everyone else is really pouring out. I mean, they're, they're honoring their giving pledge. I mean, everybody else, they're at least selling one or two pieces of property. You can't, I mean, come on. Don't you see what we're trying to raise? That has nothing to do with giving. What is being addressed here, and you can tell that's the case because do you see what Peter says in verse four? He says, while it remained, was it not your own? In other words, Peter's, Peter's saying there, the property to start with, it was yours. No, nobody's legislating this. Nobody's forcing anybody here to have to give up their money or give their lands. People are doing this willingly. And Peter's trying to say here, there's nobody forcing you to make a donation. In fact, he even goes so far in verse four to say, even after you sold it, was it not in your own control? So Peter says, even after you sold it, the money was still yours to decide to do whatever you wanted with. Even after you sold it, he's saying nobody was demanding that you give the full amount. Peter's trying to say you could have come to the church that day having sold your property and said, you know what? We would like to donate this portion of the proceeds of our land to help out anybody who we can help out. And Peter's trying to say that would have been fine. That would have been great that God would have blessed and honored that. And he would have been more than happy that you were willing to give 20% of your land or 50% of the proceeds. Nobody was forcing you, Peter said. The problem is you came trying to pretend like you were giving it all. You came trying to put on an act like you were giving everything because you saw others doing that and you didn't want to be seen as less spiritual. So you pretended and you were hypocritical. And that grievous sin of hypocrisy is what was greatly dishonoring to God because spiritual hypocrisy is destructive. So God here makes a very strong example of what he thinks about hypocrisy. <laughs> he makes a very strong statement to confront this sin wrongly. He says, you've not lied to men, but to God. In other words, he's trying to say there, you're not just lying to us, Peter says. You're trying to, to lie right in the face of God. You're trying to pull the wool over God's eyes somehow. So look what happens, verse five. Ananias, hearing these things, fell down and breathed his last. God 
gave him something, a cardiac episode. He literally dies on the spot. It says, So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and the young men arose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. So directly after this happens, talk about wow. (laughs) This man listens to the enticement of Satan. He misguides his wife, and he pretends, and it was deadly. It was deadly. Literally, he died on the spot. The power of the Holy Spirit just moved in such a way to maintain the holiness in the church and show that they did not agree and God did not endorse. Father, Son, or Holy Spirit were not willing to tolerate hypocrisy. (laughs) Aren't you glad that God's not acting in the same way every time in church gatherings like on that day? I mean, literally... Here, God just strongly makes just a very unique example in this situation. Look at verse 7. Now, it was about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. That's the Bible's way of saying she doesn't know she's a widow yet. She comes in three hours later. She's thinking, oh, I'm going to come in, and I bet everybody will tell me I'm spiritual just like Ananias. So Peter answered her when he began to talk. They're saying, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Notice he gives her individual opportunity to do what's right in the sight of God. Her husband did wrong. Her husband led the way. She was aware of it. But notice the Holy Spirit gives her a chance to do what's right in God's sight, even though her husband was leading her in the wrong direction. He says, tell me, how much did you sell the land for? She says, yes, for so much. And Peter said, how is it that you've agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down in the same way, died at his feet and was carried out and buried just like her husband. So when Peter asked her that question, what that is, that is the Holy Spirit giving this woman an opportunity to confess and repent. When he said, tell me, how much did you sell the land for? That was the Spirit of God opening an opportunity, listen, for her to do what is right before God. The question was asked as a way for God to lovingly trigger in her life, do you want to do what's right in the sight of God? Or you want to keep playing a game just like your husband is? So the Holy Spirit asked this question to give her a chance to confess and repent. And look, sometimes the Holy Spirit very graciously, mercifully, prompts us and he goads us and he gives us that little window of opportunity you going to do what's right spiritually or are you going to keep playing a game you going to you going to address this and deal with it or are you going to keep faking the funk what are you going to do you want to play games or you want to get real with god and when that window opens up listen we would be very wise to respond to the conviction of the lord and say lord you busted me thank you for busting me lord i admit yeah i'm not And he says, why have you tested the spirit of the Lord? He says to her, you've tested the spirit of the Lord. What he's saying is you're testing God's patience here. What they were doing, it was like daring the Lord to act. Why are you testing the spirit of the Lord? Well, why would you do such a thing? I hate to use the illustration, but it's kind of like, you know, going up to the Lord and kind of poking in his forehead and saying, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I've been doing this in my private life for months, for weeks, for years. I'm getting away with playing the game. What are you going to do? You haven't done nothing yet? I still go to church every week, sing the songs, I read the Bible. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I don't think it's a real good idea to not only ask God what are you going to do, but I certainly would never poke God in the forehead. 
I mean, but that's what they're doing. They're testing the Spirit of the Lord. They're testing God's power, testing God's authority. That is never a healthy thing to do. And she now falls down dead in the same way. And verse 11 says, Great fear came upon all the church and all those who heard those things. Can I say that is probably the Bible's best understatement anywhere? I imagine great fear came upon everybody in the church that day. Because that day, everybody realized the holiness and power of God as he made a strong point. And surely that act became a strong deterrent for people to sober up and to be real before God in regards to their spiritual lives and not play games as much. Look, sometimes, let's be real, honestly, sincerely, sometimes we become so familiar with the grace of Jesus Christ, and I love it and we should enjoy it, that sometimes we start to abuse the Lord's grace. And we can be guilty of pretending and playing games with God and poking God in the face and putting on an act. And look, God help us. That's a dangerous tendency. Let's be real with the Lord. Let's walk in light and walk in truth and be quick to admit when we've done what's wrong and make things right.